Thank you, everybody, for the lovely Mother's Day tribute. Um, I know that Mervyn put the video together. Thank you, Mervyn, for doing that. And Janelle, uh, I think, led the team. There was a team of like eight people in the back for like four hours make handcrafting these. And so please take take one for um, to give to a special woman in your life. You know, sometimes mothers don't have to be um, literal mothers who have given birth, but mothers are women who are, are leading other people, um, who are mentoring and influencing other people in their lives. And so please take one for a special woman in your life that you want to just say um, thank you to, someone you want to affirm and say that you are a special woman in my life. And so um, there's some extras in the back, so feel free to take one as you, as you leave today. Let me just compose myself. Just brought out the tears. <laughs> um, just It was very sweet. Last time I preached, I talked about how do we make good choices? How do we make good decisions? What are the factors that help us make wise choices? And today I want to kind of continue that theme, uh, but expand it to talk about how do we choose good leaders? Because um, next Saturday is election day, which means sometime between now, now and then, you have to choose who your leader is going to be. It's my first federal elections as an Australian citizen, and so I'm trying to catch up on all my research, trying to, trying to make sure that I do my due diligence to figure out who I am going to vote for. How do we choose the right leaders, not only for our nation, but for our lives? Who do we choose to let influence us? What qualities should we look for? The Bible has a lot to say about leadership. In fact, if you, if you kind of look at the Bible, majority of the Bible is about leaders, good and bad. I'm just going to give you a few examples um, of some of those today. So if you ever want to study leadership further, here are some of the people that you can look at. For example, Moses. He was the one who led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, endured the constant complaining and whinging and criticism of his leadership for over 40 years. The Bible calls him a very humble man. I would say he was a very patient man. But ultimately, his temper got the better of him, and he did have a few angry outbursts, and that was one of his weaknesses. There's Deborah. She was a female judge and prophet who not only led the people politically, but actually accompanied the men in their military pursuit um, in, the, in their battle. And she actually led the Israelites for 40 years. And just according to the Bible, there is no record of any failures on her part. She was an excellent leader. Another excellent leader that we, we read about in the Bible is Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia in the 5th century BC, and he led the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. Here's an example of a bad leader, Queen Athalia. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but um, there isn't a lot, but the part that is written about her is pretty sad. When she became queen, she murdered the rest of her royal family so that no other pe person could have the claim to the throne. So someone who wanted control and power that badly, she was willing to murder her own family. Here's another example of a leader who was good and bad, um, King Nebuchadnezzar. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. He expanded the Babylonian Empire. But his downfall was his pride. One day while he was walking on the rooftop of his palace, he just said to himself, Man, look at this great city of Babylon that I have built by my mighty power, my majestic splendor. I am so talented, right? And, and as he's kind of full of himself, God reminds him, it's not you that's in charge. 
So I encourage you, if you have time, to, to look at some of these characters and look at their, their uh, successes and failures so that we can learn from them. But for today, I want to look at three kings. Three kings. The first is a man named Saul. In my last sermon, I talked about the book of Judges and how the book of Judges uh, depicts a time in history when there was no leader. Repeatedly, the book of Judges says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges, as you read it, is, is, a, is a sad, chaotic, traumatic story of what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It leads to violence and abuse of power, abuse of many kinds, and ultimately splintering of relationships and the nation itself. And so as the book of Judges shows what happens to the people every time they would get into a pickle, they would cry out to God, God would send them a judge who would deliver them from their enemies. And as long as the judge was alive, the people were okay. But as soon as the judge died, they would kind of all go into chaos once more. And what happened was at the end of that period, instead of the people saying, you know what, God, we should just follow you. Because when we follow you, we're okay. But instead of coming to that conclusion, they turned to God and said, God, we want a king. Like every other nation, give us king. So God complies with their request. But he makes it very clear that a king is not going to be in their best interest. But because they want one, he says, all right, I'll give you one. And he chooses a man named Saul. Now, Saul was pretty well endowed. Not only was he the son of a wealthy, influential man, but the Bible says that he was the most handsome man in Israel. And he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. So here's a man who looked like a king, right? And so at first he starts out successful. At first, he is a successful leader. He manages to bring these, you know, 12 tribes that are very separated, very distinct from each other, who, are, who often fought each other. And he brings them together to fight against their common enemy, which was the Philistines. And so he's able to lead them. He's able to uh, lead them into victory. But, you know, just because you're chosen doesn't mean that you're guaranteed success. You are still responsible for your own choices. You, you are given the opportunity, but then it's up to you to make the most of it. And for Saul, he starts out um, doing what God wants him to do, but then very quickly, he lets his insecurities get the better of him. Here's an example of what happened. The Philistines had mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. So a lot, right? They camped at Michmash, east of Beth Heaven, and the men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in because there was only uh, 3,000 of them. And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. So here's Saul, newly elected king, and here's his army who are running for their lives, who are, you know, um, basically trying to hide from the enemy, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to pull them back together. He doesn't know how to encourage them. And it goes on to say that he was, he was at Gilgal, and, he, and the men are trembling with fear. Now, Saul had been told, you need to wait for Samuel. Before they were supposed to go into the army, they were always supposed to wait for Samuel the prophet to come, offer sacrifices to God, and make sure that the people understood this battle is not ours. But this is a battle that the God is going to fight for us. 
And the purpose of the offering was to remind everybody the victory is because God leads us, not because of our own might. But here's what's happening. Saul's waiting for Samuel to come. He waited seven days just as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still hadn't come. Saul realized his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed a burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finished with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, what is this that you have done? You see, it was, it was the king um, was not allowed to perform these offerings. That was not his role. It was a role of Samuel. And by uh, performing it himself, he was basically betraying what he really thought, which was, you know what? This is not about us trusting in God. This is about just a ritual. He completely misunderstood the purpose of the offering. He thought, we just have to check it off our checklist, then we're good to go. And he didn't realize, no, that offering is there to make everybody worship God, to put their trust in God, which is exactly the opposite of what Saul is doing. But here's how Saul responds to Samuel. He says, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are mikmash, ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us, Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You see, a good leader does not blame others for his failures. Notice how he blames everybody but himself, right? He says, the men, they've left me. You didn't come when you were supposed to. And he says, the Philistines, they're, they're, the, you know, they're too um, imposing. And he says, I felt compelled. He's like, I had no choice, right? He doesn't take responsibility for his actions. And he shows ultimately, like I said, that he does not trust in God. And Samuel tells him, you have been chosen, but you haven't made the most of what you were given. And God is going to choose someone else. But here's the thing about judgment. A lot of times when God gives judgment, right? When he, when he says, hey, you've done wrong. And he says, as a result of what you did, here are the consequences. When you look how God treats people and how God does that throughout history, there is always mercy. There have been times when God, have said, God has said to someone, hey, you did wrong. As a result of that, your reign can no longer continue. Or as a result of that, I'm going to take away um, you know, the thing that you had, or etc. And, and when the person repents and says, oh, you're right, I did do wrong, I'm very sorry, and actually uh, realizes their mistakes and tries to rely on God again, God actually extends them mercy. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, who was walking on the top of his palace and, and was prideful, God had, through a dream, warned him, hey, don't let your pride get the better of you. If you don't, God had basically said, I'm going to give you a time where you are going to have to be uh, humbled for seven years. And through Daniel, God had given him that message. And, and did you know God didn't give him the sentence right away? A whole year passed. And, and I imagine that Daniel would have told the king, hey, king, God is merciful. So if you change your ways, that sentence might not happen. 
But Nebuchadnezzar didn't change, and Saul didn't change. Instead of repenting, which at this point he could have, because God did not take away his kingdom right away, God actually gave him another 15 years. But instead of taking the most of that opportunity, he spent those 15 years doing what? Well, he spends that time finding this young man that God had chosen to be the next leader, and he spends that time exiling, persecuting, chasing him, trying to kill him. Instead of focusing on their enemy, which was the Philistines, he spends his time, resources, and energy going after his own, per his own people, his own um, follower. In fact, David, as a young man, um, was someone that was best friends with his son. What misspent passion and devotion. When evaluating a leader, we have to look at where do they spend their time energy and resources what are they fighting for you know investigators say follow the money right what are they spending their money on what are they spending their time on that's how you know what matters to someone what are they trying to protect and what are they trying to build are they willing to go at the long haul rather than taking shortcuts motivated by fear and pressure from public opinion rather than by thoughtful conviction you see, if Saul had, had seen the scattered people and if he had just said, you know what? The people have fled, but ultimately this is not about how many people we have on our side. Ultimately, it's about whether God is with us. And if he had waited for God and trusted in God, even with three people, God could have given him victory. It's happened before. But he was so worried because he thought he had to be in control. He's worried. I don't have the people. They've left. Oh, no. Now he's counting. How many people do I have left with me? I better quickly get rid of, you know, get, uh, get this thing done and do the offering so that at least I can go with the people I have. And, and you know, he's, he's trying to control. He thinks, he thinks that he can manage instead of waiting on God. In contrast, we have the second king, David. He's willing to wait. Like I said, 15 years from the moment when he was told by prophet Samuel that you're going to be king. And the Samuel didn't tell him when. He just anointed him and said, God has made you the next king of Israel. And David could have said, hooray, and, and marched and, 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 and taken the palace by storm. After all, this David was the one who, with a slingshot and a stone, killed the champion giant Goliath. And so public opinion was in his favor. His rankings were high. Right? The stats were in his favor. He could have taken that moment and seized the opportunity to say, Saul was too scared of Goliath. He stayed in his tent. I went out and I, I won the battle against the Philistines. Who's with me? And people would have followed. But he didn't do that. He could have politically maneuvered public opinion in his favor. He could have turned against Saul. There were so many opportunities. When, when Saul actually hires David to play the harp for him in the palace, right? A menial task for someone who's going to be king, but he doesn't complain. He faithfully watches the sheep when it's time to watch the sheep. And when he was called and beckoned to the palace, he would go to the palace and play the harp for him, singing the Psalms that we have today in the Bible. And when Saul, in his jealousy and insecurity, would, would, as David is playing the harp, throw like javelins and spears and trying to kill David, David could have at any moment started sp spreading the true fact, Saul is trying to kill me, right? And try to get the people to, to, 
see that Saul is crazy and that he needs to be dethroned. But David didn't do that. In the almost 10 years that David is in exile, hiding in caves, hide, hiding in, in the outskirts of Israel, not able to go home and be with um, his own people, right, because he's fleeing from Saul, he never once complained, God, you're supposed to make me king. Why am I not king yet? In fact, there were two moments where Saul was sleeping and David was right there. David could have killed him so easily. But David chooses not to. David chooses to wait on God. Fifteen years he waits until finally he's made king after Saul dies in battle, not with David, but with the Philistines. When David becomes king, he actually unified the confederacy of tribes. So Saul had led the tribes in battle together, but David actually unites them. They all come together as one to crown David king. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. Before that, it wasn't. And after that, it, it became the capital. And of course, to this day, Jerusalem is a very important city for Israel. He brought back the captured Ark of the Covenant that had been taken uh, before he led the army through many victories, and he judged the people with justice and mercy. He was a good king until he became complacent. He became comfortable. He became entitled. The Bible says, in those times when it was the season for kings to accompany their men into battle, David went up to the rooftop of his palace and saw a beautiful woman bathing. You see, he was supposed to be out in battle with his men. There's a reason why the Bible says, in the time when kings accompanied men into battle, David is not where he's supposed to be because now he's come to the point where he's like, ah, I'll leave that to the soldiers. I am now the king. I'm going to stay in my palace, enjoy my luxury, and send the others out to go and sacrifice themselves. And of course, that choice leads to a series of other selfish choices that ultimately lead to an affair and even murder. Like I said, God comes to him and gives him that sentence of judgment. He says, hey, you did wrong. As a result of what you did, here are the consequences. But unlike Saul, David repents. David repents. And later, I encourage you to read Psalm 52, which is a record of David's actual psalm of repentance, where he says, Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Against you I have sinned. And he goes on to, he repents truly. And even though there are consequences to his actions still, he remains someone who knows that it is in God alone that you can be a good leader. Of course, his choices and the consequences from his choices led to the splintering of his family. You can imagine that when the dad has an affair, the children are not happy. So from then on, he loses the respect of his children. Ultimately, he does lose the respect of the nation. Many leaders start out with good intentions and values, but power and privilege become too convenient, and they start making compromises. They abuse their power by thinking they're above the law and that they can get away with things because of their position. They live in extravagance and comfort while their servants or employees today do all the work. 
So imagine the surprise of the Jews and the Romans of the first century when Jesus comes along, the son of a carpenter, a young man of 30 years old, no pedigree, no prestigious uni to his name, no political connections, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, here comes the king. But he's unlike any king that they have ever known. He feeds the poor. He lives with fishermen and social outcasts. He grabs a towel and washes his followers' feet. He spends time with convicts, children, the diseased and disabled. And it's not a for a photo shoot, right? It's not for a photo opportunity, but it's from a genuine place where he's with them. He's healing them. He's living with them. He's eating with them. He reads their minds and hearts and can see the future, but he still gives them a chance even to Judas, who's going to betray him. He has all power and authority, but he travels on a donkey. No helicopter ride for him. Just when there's a crowd of people ready to make him king, he slips away into the mountains to pray alone. He forgives his enemies and ultimately gives his life for them. Instead of a crown of gold, he wears a crown of thorns. And instead of ascending the throne, he descends into the tomb. His constitution as outlined in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 can be summarized as do to others what you want them to do to you. His campaign slogan was not about making Israel great again or about what will benefit you financially. In fact, his catchphrase was something that was quite unattractive. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything more than your soul? Jesus didn't want a large following of fans who just wanted the perks of knowing the king. He wanted committed followers who are willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus all the way to his death. Even if they never see the benefits in their lifetime. He turned leadership upside down. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 followers. And of the 12, there were two that were brothers, James and John. They were called the sons of Zebedee. And their mom, being the tiger mom that she is, comes to Jesus and asks, Hey, Jesus, can my two sons sit on either side of your throne, one on the right hand and one on the left hand when you, when you become king? And when the other 10 disciples find out that James and John are plotting to be, you know, right next to Jesus, they get really upset. And so they start fighting with each other. And Jesus turns to him to turn them and he says this. You know that the rulers in the world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, leadership as exemplified and defined by Jesus was not about being first. It wasn't about being served, but about being last. It was about service, about sacrifice, giving your life for the greater good. 
And it's not about being the smartest or the best or the most qualified, but it's about how humble are you? How willing are you to serve those that you're trying to lead? In Philippians, Jesus goes, uh, the, ex the description of Jesus as a humble person that then gets exalted is given as an example for us. Paul writes, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God, something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, he says, look at the example of Jesus. He humbled himself. He gave up his divine privileges and rights, and he becomes a human being. Not just any human being, but a poor baby born into a family that is so low on the you know, uh, socioeconomic rung that all they can afford to put him in is the trough of the animals in the barn. And then he became a man and he humbled himself to death on the cross. Jesus had said, anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must be like a little child. We have to be willing to lose our privileges, lose our entitlements, and even lose our lives as Jesus did to give his life for many. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, observed that Jesus' death and resurrection showed that the power of love is greater than the love of power. The power of love is greater than the love of power. Jesus, as God, could have used his power to try to influence people, but instead he uses the power of love to transform the world. He didn't treat his disciples as slaves, but as friends. He says this in John 15. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends because I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. So this morning I have three challenges for you. First, in choosing a leader for our country this week, I hope you consider the qualities that make a great leader. Humility, genuine care for all people, and obedience to God. Secondly, while we might not have ultimate control over who becomes our political leader, we do have control over who becomes the king of our lives. So my second challenge to you is choose Jesus as your leader. Follow him. Ask him for direction in your life, for direction in your career, in your studies. Make him the king of your life. 
And third, become a leader like Jesus. You might be thinking to yourself that you're not a leader. You know, perhaps you don't have any leadership roles in your workplace. Perhaps you don't have a leadership role in church. Um, perhaps you feel like you're not really a leader. But actually, Jesus calls all of us to be leaders. In what's called the Great Commission, Jesus told his followers, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus has all authority. He has all power. But instead of keeping it for himself, he actually shares it with us. And he says, I want you to be leaders. I want you to go and make the disciples. Next week, when Pastor Peter Runfeld comes to talk about witnessing, how to lead people, he's going to share how leading others doesn't have to be intimidating. It's not about memorizing Bible verses and giving Bible studies. You know, those are nice. But really, leadership is very simple. Leadership is in humility, listening, and genuinely befriending someone, caring for them, and being willing to do God's will. That's why he says, if you can eat, you can make disciples, because he basically is going to share with you how it's, it's, it's not so intimidating to just say to someone, hey, tell me about you. Let's, let's catch up with, you know, a cup of, with a cup of, let's have a meal together, and tell me your story. And just listen to who they are, what they're going through. And as you listen to their story, and as you connect with them, then maybe you'll have an opportunity to share your story. One of my favorite quotes in my personal philosophy of ministry and leadership is this. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. You see, leaders lead people, not projects. Leaders lead people. That means they spend time with people, not just supervising or directing or managing plans from a distance, but leaders spend time with the people that they want to influence. Leaders listen and care and build genuine friendships with people. So if Jesus is calling all of us to be leaders, to, to make disciples, that means all of us have to spend time with someone with their best interest in mind. Not with our own agenda, but just listening to them and caring for them. Our vision for this church is very simple. Our, our vision statement, our mission statement is loving God, loving others, exploring a Christ-centered worldview. We might not, we may not be the largest church. We may not have the best music or the sermon or the decor. But if we are the most genuine, caring community, then people will want to know about Jesus. They will come. You may not be the most eloquent, most Bible knowledgeable, or most confident person. But if you're genuine and caring, then you can lead someone to Jesus. All followers of Jesus are called to be leaders by simply doing what Jesus did, being humble, caring, and doing the will of God, being willing to listen to God's will. Even that means sacrifice. And Jesus promises 
that it's not all in vain. When Peter says to him, we've given up everything to follow you, and what will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new, and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. May God give you wisdom and perspective as you learn to be a follower of Jesus, but also a leader for Jesus. Knowing that it's not about power or privilege or position, but it's about genuinely caring for those around us and, and making the time to mingle with people with their best interest in mind. And so may we have servant hearts, and may we, as a result of that, become a community that is loving God, loving others, and exploring a Christ-centered worldview. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us so much, even though you have so much that you're willing to give it all up for us. And I pray that we would have the same servant um, heart of being willing to serve others, love others, to make a time for others. Father, help us to follow you and to learn from you what it means to be a good leader so that we can lead others to you and that we can make good decisions about who we let lead our lives. And Father, I pray that as we go into the exchange now and, and explore this for, uh, topic further, that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and would give us the power to apply what we're learning into our lives. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.